We're going to look at the following this week regarding joy. We're going to look at number one, what is this type of joy the Bible refers to? So the first thing is, what is this type of joy the Bible refers to? Two is, what is it not? What is it not is number two. And then number three is the benefit of joy. The benefit of joy. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for this time that we get to be before you and, and just celebrate with your word and go over what this means, what this joy in this, in this means for the Christian believer, what it doesn't mean, and then how we just need to put all of our focus on you to obtain that joy. Just the Holy Spirit, come and fill this room. Uh, be with us. Quiet our hearts. Thank you for quieting the heater. And we just love you so much. Amen. So number one, what is this type of joy the Bible refers to? What is it? Well, joy in Greek, there are eight words. There are eight Greek words for joy in the New Testament. But the most prevalent one and I'm not going to say it like they do in Greek, but my English form of it is hara. I don't have the deep throatiness, and I don't want to insult them, but it appears about 60 times in the New Testament, and its first occurrence in the New Testament is in the nativity scene in Matthew 2.10, which says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, according to the Strong's Concordance, hara means joy. It's a calm delight or inner gladness. It's related to another word called haro, um, which means to rejoice, and haris, which means grace. So therefore, hara means to rejoice because of grace. It is the awareness of God's grace or favors through Jesus as well as our reaction to it. Joy is also listed as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Literally, the fruit of the Spirit is what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells in a believer. The fruit is the product of the Holy Spirit's cultivation or character being displayed in the heart of a believer. Galatians 5, and 23 describes what that fruit looks like, and the second one listed is joy. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. So joy is that natural reaction to the supernatural work of God. Joy is our expression to realizing that we are in God's kingdom. 
in Romans 14, 17. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So that was the definition of, of joy that we see in the Bible. Now let's look at some applications of joy, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. And the first one that came to my mind when I thought of the Old Testament was King David. King David, when he received repentance for the horrific acts that he committed after his lust of Bathsheba. I mean, I got to, I got to actually, you know, as, as scared as I was and many times I tried to get out of it, I actually got to give a sermon in Egypt and that's one of the things I talked about is how this guy that, that God loves and through him brought us Jesus basically at this time basically broke all Ten Commandments. Um, but with the horrible things he did with Bathsheba, having Uriah the Hittite killed um, and everything else, he repented where his son did not, he did. And in Psalm 51, 7 through 12, he sang, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. So that is the passage, this passage is the joy of being delivered, knowing that he had every right to be cast away for what he did. God set David free and therefore rejoicing was in order. Then in 1 Samuel 2, 1 and 2, we see Hannah was filled with joy at her deliverance from her enemies. And you're saying, what are her enemies? That Well, it was her, her sister wife, right? That was dogging her because she couldn't give birth. God saw that she was faithful and answered her prayers, and she was able to give birth. And she said, again, in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 2, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like you, Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. So she's showing her joy. Also, she's giving us one of the first versions of trash talking we see in the Bible that she's calling her sister wife out. But um, you see that joy that she was finally, finally able to give birth. And then the temple, the temple that David wanted to build, but God said, no, this will be completed by your son, Solomon. There was great joy in the celebration and the dedication of that temple. 1 Kings 8.66 sums up the people's feelings of the dedication and feasting afterwards. It says, on the eighth day, he, he being Solomon, sent the people away 
you know, an eight-day party. Holy cow. And they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown David and his servant into Israel, his people. Another time, in, in David's time, when they were able to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, there was great joy, great joy when the Levites brought him in. First Chronicle 15.25 So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went up to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Now in the New Testament, just a quick look, one of my favorites, um, in Acts 12, 14, if we remember, Peter had been let out of jail by the Holy Spirit and, and came and found, found the other believers in the home of the mother of, of Mark. And the servant girl, Rhoda, saw him. She was so overjoyed that she ran to go tell everyone else she just forgot one thing, right? She forgot to let Peter in. So they didn't believe her, but he kept knocking. So we see what joy is and acts of it. Number two is what joy is not. What joy is not. Um, joy is not common grace. Um, our role in this life is to grow in a deeper understanding of God so that we can obey his commands, just not the easy ones, that as we learn this, we can obey all of his commands. So we need to get this message out about Jesus and his love that leads to salvation. I have a friend I recently connected with who shocked me because that the first night, all he could talk about was Jesus, what Jesus meant to him, everything Jesus had done for him. Um, but I'm listening, and it was all for his comfort. It was all for his comfort. I guess the lottery he never paid off, but they worked hard, and he led a, was leading a life of comfort. And then later that night, he confided in me, you know, I don't really go to church. So I was going to notice after another day with him, there was no real display of any, any evidence of Christ in his life of a relationship with it and everything he shared about his relationship with God was 40 years ago 40 years ago so in his comfort in retirement knowing him and knowing how hard he and his wife worked their comfort was actually from their hard work over 30 years of working so while knowing he's saved and knowing it was real, um, I told him, I said, you're basically just living like a spiritual prisoner of war. There's nothing going on that's teaching that next generation. And I think the worst thing to hear, it, I hope it got to him, his wife was saying that same thing. She didn't come to his aid. She came to our defense that people need to hear you. People in their family need to hear you talk about Jesus and what Jesus is and he was not so it got me thinking how many people confuse spiritual joy 
within what reality they, they have is common grace. So if you're asking what is common grace, um, it's the goodness of God that he shows everyone, right? Um, it includes the delay of God's wrath that is coming for non-believers. And first of all, so we get a clear understanding, no one seeks grace. Grace is a calling on the individual life of people by the Holy Spirit. And we see that in Romans 3, 10 through 12. It says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. So we all deserve wrath, right? But some of us have been called by God, praise you God, out of his wrath, while others are not so lucky. They're destined to hell, but, and a few of them live like kings on this earth. Now, God is holding back, I know it doesn't seem like it nowadays, but God is holding back total depravity and total sin in the world, and we have seen this from the beginning of time. Back in one of the very first parts of Genesis, in chapter 4, we see God put a mark on Cain to make sure people knew, don't pick on him, he's mine. I will execute his judgment later. When Abraham was traveling and he had that fear and he was passing Sarah off as a sister and other kings would give him great wealth to take her off his hands, one of them was King Abimelech and God told Abimelech in Genesis 26, God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, but it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, apart from God, goodness performed by others can only be described as a relative good. Usually, when someone does a good, they want the publicity from it, right? That's why we have a lot of children's hospitals named after the person that donated out of their extreme wealth to give that. And they want to ensure the world knows they did that. So, there is no righteousness or obedience to God's word involved with the actions of donating out of their wealth out of their own pride. Now these people consider themselves doing a great favor for people in these lesser situations. And so we all heard the question, right? We've all heard this when people say, then why does give God give so much to bad people? And that's the reason. God says he rains falls on the good and the wicked the answer is it's common grace, but it doesn't end well for the rich people, for the good people. It doesn't end well. The prophet Zephaniah describes it in the following passage, talking about God's people that should have known better, but didn't. In Zephaniah 3, 1 through 7, it says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, 
the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruin. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. And although Zephaniah stated this from God thousands of years ago, we still see it stands firm today. Now, the evidence that there's no joy in your life, the evidence that there's no joy in your life, um, it's the peril of no joy. One may lose the joy of the Lord. David prayed, and we went over in, in Psalm 51, he prayed for God to rejoice, to restore the joy of salvation that he had lost. One may lose this joy if he witnesses the following traits in his life. So let's go over them. Number one is anger, anger. When one has unrighteous anger, he loses the joy of the Lord. While not all anger is sin, we as believers should not be consumed with anger. You may ask, what is the requirement for anger and how long can we keep it? I truly believe that the more we grow in Christ, the less angry we become. Um, in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, gives us the best instruction for dealing with this sin of anger in our lives. It tells us to be angry, but do not sin. So basically it says, you can be upset, but you can't kill your kids, and you surely can't kill your spouse. Also it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but let only that talk that builds up others come out. Now imagine if you, and especially me, did that how different our witness would be. I know at my work we tell people, you have to say to somebody five positive statements before you can give them an example of something they need to correct. And I emphasize with them five positive good statements. Good, because after the first time, somebody went up and said, I'm quite positive you're an idiot. And, and it's not that this isn't what I meant. I want you to give five positive statements and then tell them how you can correct it. When we are angry and we sin, Jesus says, you have also grieved the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit was sealed in us for redemption. 
So Ephesians goes on to say, put all these sin traits behind you and move forward into sanctification, remembering that we need to forgive others as God forgave us by sending Jesus to us as a redeemer. The second one, the second one, criticism. Being critical towards others shows the lack of joy of the Lord. Think about that for a moment. Being critical towards others shows the lack of joy of the Lord. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, Hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. We can become so critical in our own lives that we don't even realize that everything that comes out of our mouth is identifying specks and not being grateful for the people God gave us in our own lives. If you recognize this trait in your life, please understand it means you have no joy. And then certainly the people around you that you're criticizing, they have no joy either. Then how do you get over it? I think the number one is you recognize what it is. You recognize that this is sin. And you, by doing this, you actually aren't helping people get better by criticizing them. And you certainly aren't just keeping it real. That's not what you're doing. The best way to do is to seek God and ask forgiveness for this sin. Recognize what you as a believer have been saved from and allow joy to enter your life. Give those around you praise and thanks for what they mean to you. Ephesians 5, 19 through 20 says, that once you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you should be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is that act of remembering that you were once a sinner destined for hell. And now, thanking God for his gift and thanking him for the people around you. Um, here's another solution. I've tried it, and I always, always haven't been successful in it, but it pays off. Before or once you recognize that you are being critical of someone, um, you know how they say walk a mile in their shoes? This is something different. I challenge you to pray for that person for an extended amount of time. And 30 days is not too long to pray for someone. Because when you have a dedicated prayer life for someone, it changes how you feel. It changes your outlook on other people and your situations that you are in. And you realize joy becomes easier and often in your spirit, all of a sudden you realize 
that you care for this person. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit will do for you. And people can be shocked at your new outcome and wonder what happened to you. And now is the perfect time to witness to them. And then think about this. Criticism, criticism is the opposite of love. And what does God want for us? He wants us to love. So if we look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Homework assignment. Homework assignment. If you decide you have a critical spirit, go back over this passage and replace love with the word criticism. And then replace it. So it's real simple. Criticism is not patient. It is not kind. And continue on that way. And you get an idea of your witness to other people by doing that. Because basically stating, criticism demands its own way, rejoices in, in failure, is irritable, is not patient, nor kind. Criticism bears nothing but resentment. And if, if you think about it, this is how people see you, then follow my guidance and start praying for them and yourself relentlessly. This will change your behavior. I know you're probably thinking, I would say you will change your behavior, but by removing this critical spirit, the Holy Spirit will change you. C, sin, the third one. Sin always separates man from God, causing them to lose the joy of the Lord. One thing I learned, and I didn't know this early on, but I learned it in my later years, it's amazing that you can tell, you can tell someone has lost their joy because they don't tithe. That sounded weird to me at first, but I've seen it firsthand over and over. Years ago, actually in this church, um, we had a couple and their reputation was that of this ideal married couple. In fact, they would talk to people and teach them about being married. And they assumed they had this great marriage. Um, after we started years later, the husband was turned down for leadership. Um, even though the pastor at the time said, no, he took it well, you could see he was angry and, and being critical. When our pastor would speak, he would face 90 degrees from him and look out the window at the YMCA. Um, and you could see he'd allowed sin to creep in. And what I think was amazing is immediately you saw he wasn't tithing. But this man that, that portrayed that he had this great marriage never talked to his wife about it. 
And the reason I know that, because the Sundays he wasn't there, his wife tithed. I mean, when I almost met them, I wonder if, if this relationship was real. It seemed too good to be true. It seemed like they were a modern-day Ozzy and Harriet. Um, but it wasn't. It was, it was a house of cards. I mean, I shared with the pastor, you need to go talk with this man because he goes here and you could tell he's not right with what you shared. You need to go talk to him. That never happened. The man soon left and we found out later he was still bitter and allowed sin in his life because this is a small church community. Although we have thousands of churches, pastors talk. And we got a call from the pastor of the church they attended, concerned for us because this man said he had left because Soma, you know, cared more for alcohol than they did God. So we got to set things straight with that pastor and let him know um, carefully and cautiously what we knew. <coughs> and interesting, the man didn't stay there long either. So the point is, when sin creeps into your life, it can take hold of you and take you far from God while you are seeking, without even realizing it, to be a small g God yourself. And pretty soon you'll find yourself only hanging with people that will meet your needs. So sin corrupts fully, and it takes hold of a sinner. So the big takeaway here is sin is the opposite of living in the Spirit. 1 John 3, 4, and 6. 1 John 3, 4, and 6. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. <coughs> in him there is no sin. No one who abides on him, no one who lives with him, keeps on sinning. Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And so, you know, God is not out to hurt your pride. He's not out there to hurt your pride. He's out there to kill your pride. By allowing it to continue, it will lead to your fall. We see this in Solomon, right? Solomon was made the most wise man in the world. But he started to believe his own press clippings and all the things that his young wives kept telling him. He fell out of worship, and he chased after the gods of his wives, and it led to his destruction. And one of the best, or actually one of the worst examples, is what we see with the Pharisees and their, their example of spiritual pride. Imagine this. Imagine this. Jesus is in your midst, in the form of a man, right in front of you. You have spent your whole life knowing the scriptures you can memorize you memorize and you can repeat large passages out of scripture right there but you fail to see what all the old testament prophets told you in these scriptures 
about the Christ. You don't get it. Isaiah told him, Jeremiah told him, and others, all talking about Jesus. But the pride and the greed they have caused them no chance of being humble enough to see God who was right in front of them. They missed him. They missed the, the Messiah, the one that Moses, Isaiah, David, Elijah, and others longed to see. An example of their pride, we see Jesus had healed a blind beggar on the Sabbath. He showed that he was willing to do anything to be healed. Jesus put mud on his eyes and he went and washed and now he could see. He faithfully did all this in obedience to Jesus and his neighbors who knew him as being born blind and a beggar, they took him to the Pharisees so the Pharisees could witness this miracle. And I can only imagine that because praise was given to Jesus and not them, that they dismissed this miracle, something that no one has seen at that time. No one had seen the blind healed. So let's pick up the story. It's in John 9, 24 through 34. And for the second time, they, they being the Pharisees, called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why is this an amazing thing? <coughs> You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. I think this is an amazing passage because it shows us who was teaching who there. This man was born blind. He couldn't study the scriptures but God put it in his mouth to share for all that was in attendance which also means us as it's in the Bible. And to say in 931, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. That's just amazing. All right, lack of patience, lack of patience. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 
So when our plans fail, when we do not get our own way, we can become impatient. Remembering that our days are planned, and even though we have our own plans, we need to remember that God may have divine appointments for us and ready for us. Most likely, we are never going to know what they are, but we need to live in such a way that we're ready. One of the great stories I have about this is we had a friend named Bert. He would do anything for you, anything for you. And one time coming back from an Angels game, our, our van broke down in La Cañada. So Bert goes, don't, don't worry about U-Haul. I mean, uh, AAA. I'll borrow my, my brother's truck and we can go get it. So this is like a Sunday afternoon. I wanted to go get it and get back home. We went and got it. Got it loaded up. Started to move and realized the tires were flat. They had given us a truck, I mean a trailer, that wasn't really checked out. So I was very impatient and very rude to the U-Haul people on the phone, stating, how can you do this? And they said, don't worry, sir, we'll be right out. It'll be no longer than two hours. I was like, what? I looked over and I told them, and Bert said, no worries. Let's just take some time to get to know each other. It's like, ah! Oh. Wow. It's like, you mean, like, be patient and enjoy each other's company? And we did. We did. And, and that started, a, that education started also a lifelong friendship that we had with each other. It was great. A lot of great stories came out of that. A lot of great stories. Um, from nicknames that we obtained a friend. Because where we had to get this van, it was at the bottom of the hill. And, you know, well, we parked at the bottom of the hill. The van was up top. So I chose not to get in and drive it. So we picked, a, we picked like, the weakest one of our group, put him in the van, and said, Jim, you got one shot. You screw this up, it's going to come off the trailer and overturn. You get one shot to do it right. And he did it. It was hilarious. It wouldn't start. Very limited power steering, but he got it on there. So from then on out, he was called One Shot. Um, yeah, he was a character. He was a character. Always knew everything. So I think the funniest thing was riding back. It was me, Tyler, and One Shot in the back seat. And One Shot wouldn't stop talking. Finally, Tyler just lost it. Just lost it. The laugh was incredible. He had no idea what was going on, but Tyler had us all laughing because Tyler just had reached that point where he was just laughing hysterically. The, the fact that this guy knew everything and had opinion on everything. It was, it was hilarious. But it, it taught me a lot there too. You know, and I, I'm not always good at this, but you need to recognize when you're in a moment, why are you in that moment? Why are you there? What is God bringing your way? Who needs to hear something. So that was incredible. Have I been impatient? Yes, yes. Continue to this day. It takes a lot to get out of that mode. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope 
until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So by placing your faith in God and His plan, you're ready so when your plan fails, you can immediately realize that you need to focus on what God has for you or where He is taking you in that moment. One of the great passages on this, Psalm 130. Psalm 135 and 6 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits on the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. And you realize how many times did God's people, especially going to Isaiah, we see this, did they panic in the Old Testament? They showed a lack of patience, a lack of understanding, and they sought help from other men and still God instead of God. And we looked at this last week, right? We were reminded of Ahaz and when God sent Isaiah to him and challenged with him and says, ask anything of me. Nothing's too big. Ask it of me. But he had passed. He had passed because he had already made a deal with the Assyrians. And then later in Isaiah 30, 1 through 2, 1 and 2, God tells us, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction, take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and seek shelter in the shade of Egypt. If only we develop that relationship where we will not be driven to panic and we will trust fully and completely. Galatians 5.23 reminds us also that patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called for with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love all right now the benefits of joy the benefits of joy the joy of salvation that's our greatest reason to be joyful right is that god saved us because he wants to spend time with us he wants to teach us, and then he wants, the craziest thing is to spend eternity with us. There's nothing better than that, right? Luke 15, 7. Luke 15, 7. says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Acts 8, 8 says, The people of Samaria were joyful as they heard the gospel and saw in God's power in healing the sick. Acts 8, 13, 52 and 15, 3. The Jewish believers rejoiced when they heard of the work 
of the Holy Spirit in saving the Gentiles. That type of joy comes from spiritual maturity as the Holy Spirit works in us to bear more fruit. We become confident in God's promises and rejoice in our own walk with Him and the walk with other believers. John 15, 11, John 15, 11, the fullness of joy comes to those who continue in the love of Christ and obey Him, and obey Him. I think one of the coolest things to see is Paul. Paul knew joy as he witnessed and saw evidence that the Holy Spirit was working in these churches he planted. And in Philippians 2.2, Paul encourages groups of believers to unite, to unite in demonstrating the mind, in the mind, love, and purpose of Christ bringing joy to others. And then we see in Hebrews and in James, believers following the example of Jesus and that they endured persecution because of that promise of future joy. The joy of God's presence, the Holy Spirit draws us to God. In the presence, in His presence, that's where we seek and find pure joy, true joy. Without the Holy Spirit, like we talked earlier, no one would seek God. Psalm 1611, Psalm 1611 says, You made known to me the path of your life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We see in the the story of Jesus coming that Mary and the shepherds were joyful because Emmanuel, promised to us from long ago, had been born. At the end of Jesus' time on earth, we see the women who went to Jesus' tomb and the disciples were overjoyed when they realized that he had rose from the dead. We have joy because of God's grace. The next step in this progression is to allow our joy to become an action as we express it. Although sometimes our joy can be so great, it is inexpressible. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Possessing joy and a deep joy is from growth and understanding on our way to sanctification. It shows the depth of our relationship that we have and it demonstrates the value, the value we have in being in God's presence, understanding His promises and His work in our lives. When we sit before the Lord, we learn His ways, we learn His commands, we learn to yield to the Holy Spirit. He opens our eyes to God's grace that's all around us 
and fills us with joy. That's Romans 15, 13. <clears throat> joy is not to be found in a fallen world. It's only to be found with fellowship with God who makes our joy complete. Jude 1, 24 and 25. Jude 1, 24 and 25. Now to him is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I tell you what, you know someone is either crazy or you know they're a liar or they truly have a deep relationship with God when they have joy in the midst of their trials. A while back, I think, I'm going to forget, I think I took Colleen with me, went to a funeral of an older man I worked with when we were doing the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math work for all these schools anywhere from Tehachapi to Boron to Lancaster to Palmdale, even this school. His name was Joel Beckman, attends the funeral. The one thing that got me as I went to it is the nurse came up to spoke. She was the last nurse that he had dealt with. Uh, they had brought him in, he was near death. He was spitting up blood, couldn't bleed. They put him on a ventilator. She's not a believer. And she said, um, Dang it. She said the, con the concern that he had, even though he couldn't speak, he was letting her know that he was concerned for her. She said she had seen nothing like it in her life and wanted to know more about this God. So Romans 15:5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ. Because we are in this race to compete and win. So get all the tools that are available to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for this time that we can see and be reminded of what this joy is that we are to have. That when all else fails, when we aren't getting our way, when things are tough, we've grown so much in you that we just know joy. We thank you for it and we thank you for your love. Amen. So joy is a perfect time 